Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Hey, Ashley, it's good to be with you, even though we're in the middle of a pretty terrible week. Yeah, yeah. So as everyone listening to this probably knows, this week an 18-year-old killed 19 children and two teachers at an elementary school in Texas. This comes just a week after a white supremacists killed 10 people at a supermarket in a majority black neighborhood in Buffalo, New York. We've been here before. This happens all the time in America. And it feels like we have the same reactions, the same conversations. We we read and post the same tweets. Yeah. And that's why this week, instead of doing our normal show with Signs of the Times and a, a new interview, we're going to uh, replay a conversation we had back in 2018 about gun control. This was in the aftermath of a shooting that killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. And we brought on Patrick Blanchfield, who writes about gun violence in America. Yeah, we Talk to him about uh, what what gets missed in our gun control debate and the familiar back and forth over thoughts and prayers and the debate around that. But we also we try to take a broader view and discuss how violence in American schools and, and in our streets is connected to American violence abroad, as, as well as the spiritual crisis of fear, which is underlying all of this. Right. And of course, we are following the events um, out of Texas over at americamagazine.org. We're covering the reactions to the massacre from bishops and leaders in the Catholic Church. So we will link to those stories in the show notes. And after the interview, we're reading a prayer from our colleague, Father James Martin, for when you feel sad, tired, and angry in the face of gun violence. And that's also linked here in the show notes. So stick around for our conversation with Patrick Blanchfield. Today, joining us via Skype is Patrick Blanchfield. He is an associate faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research and a writer on issues like U.S. culture, violence, and politics. Welcome to Jesuitical, Patrick. Hey, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah, we're very excited to have you. So... Once again, we've kind of seen the issue of gun control kind of thrust into the forefront of the media. Why do you think it's so difficult for us as a nation to talk about gun control? That's a phenomenal question. And sort of like it's it's the recurring question in all these Mm -hmm. things. One thing I I sort of stipulate at the outset is that a, a lot of times 
is, is, it, is sort of pushing at the question of what is gun control sort of to know? When you say the words gun control, people start thinking, you know, they think Diane Feinstein on the floor of Congress holding up a gun. They think cops knocking on doors. They think the NRA. They, they basically, it, it activates this whole well-worn series of cultural responses um, that have been pretty much played out. And, and we all sort of know how we feel about these things. And they activate all these interest groups and the like. Um, but that those sort of debates all, oftentimes exist independent from our thinking in a very sustained way about the problem of gun violence much more broadly, right? Um, which is not reducible to like what we mean by gun control, right? A lot of what people talk about gun control might, might involve like police violence, which, you know, is a type of gun violence. Right. Um, so th- th- it's sort of our difficulty thinking through like, what, what do we mean when we talk about gun control? What do we mean when we talk about gun violence? And why do those two conversations sometimes almost feel like they're proceeding like spinning plates or in parallel to each other rather than connecting. And is is that because when we do have debates about gun control, it's often in response to mass shootings, and that's just a very small part of gun violence? Yeah, that's, that's precisely right. And so the conversation becomes very narrowly about preventing what is essentially rampage violence in public spaces that impact certain sets of people, namely you know, college students, high school students, office workers, churchgoers, et cetera. But implicitly, that accepts a whole other category of violence or other different kinds of gun violence as being normal and acceptable. So we're talking about this um, more than a month after the last rampage shooting in Parkland, Florida. Um, and the fact that we're still talking about it and people in the media are still talking about it um, is is different. Usually we do have the well-worn script of mass shooting, one week of attention, moving on. You know, at the March for Our Lives, there were um, representatives from, you know, from, you know, inner city violence or, or suicide, that sort of thing. Do you, do, you, do you see this as a different script? Yes, this moment is different. Uh, I do think, the moment, I mean, like, I, I don't, um, this, this moment is, 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 I think, very different and very, like, pregnant with possibility. I mean, my job—I'll speak from like my personal perspective, right? Which is a little weird. Which is that um, I've been—I've been writing about gun violence and mass shootings for about six years now, and for many years it had been this thing where something awful happens, my phone just explodes, um, and I, I, I'm doing interviews and I'm doing pieces and I'm, I'm constantly talking to people for about a week and a half, and then nothing, and then the same thing happens two weeks later, and then it ha- you know it, it's an odd these odd cycles of forgetting and then horror and then sort of retreat and exasperation and resignation. It's a very sad landscape. This time does feel different. Uh, And I think that has a lot to do with um, both the specific advocacy of the players involved, these kids. Uh, It has a lot to do with where they're coming from and who they are and what they represent. But it also has a lot to do with like sustained capacity building on the part of anti-gun violence organizations. And also, I think there has been this kind of, I don't want to call it like a sweet spot, but it hit this very particular spot of the national conversation being just exhausted beyond exhaustion, and then also just the white community feeling the brunt of this. And then they're springing very nobly into activist roles on that. Well, uh, you, you've written before that it's not super useful to think of uh, the gun debate in terms of conservative and liberal. Um, uh, why is it? Why is that not super useful? And what are better ways to think of it? If you take a view of American history that's more than just like a four or five year election cycle mm-hmm. uh, and look in the way in which guns and gun ownership have been a contested category, it becomes pretty clear that the issue is not the guns themselves. It's who's carrying them. In 1968, when the Black Panthers mounted the, the steps of the California Capitol carrying guns, Ronald Reagan launched what was you know, the first 
what is recognizably modern gun control in response to that. Right. This is Ronald Reagan, governor of California, like saying that people don't, there's no reason for a reasonable citizen who wants to do anything good to be walking around with a loaded weapon. I'm, I'm paraphrasing the quote, but something like that. Right. So, so so at that point, I'm like, well, is, is this a a lot of the things that Reagan was suggesting, a lot of these sort of basic moral attitudes that well, no one should be needing to do this. Like you when you actually look at the context, right? these are not a lot of those phrases could be in the, the mouth of a contemporary liberal. Right. But. Now, there, they were definitely being applied for fairly reactionary, specific purposes. So, um, and then if you if you move closer to the present, right, it becomes clear that a lot of um, a lot of things that liberals will otherwise be, with good reason, be skeptical about, right? Hopefully, will be skeptical about, like certain types of policing measures, um, certain types of security state growth, like you know, no fly lists and all this other stuff. Um, when it comes to guns, a lot of liberals will suddenly very closely resemble their conservative brethren and being like, well, you know, we need to give the cops more power. And so at that point, it doesn't seem to be just narrowly about the about the guns. It appears to be about maintaining certain distributions of power uh, and recourse to violence. And, and that's still the case today, because I think a lot of people, you know, the political dynamics have shifted and it's thought of as very much. And this is true in like my own family and friends that if you vote Republican or if you're conservative, you generally are for carrying guns in the Second Amendment. And if you don't, then you want gun control, whatever that means. Um, and I feel like a lot of the times, this has been my experience, is that even when I wanted more gun control, I hadn't thought super critically about these these questions of like what, what types of control and what types of violence we're trying to stop. Um, so is that still the case today? I think that's, that's absolutely the case right now. Uh, and it's also why like I'm really heartened by what I'm seeing from the Parkland never again people. And also mm-hmm. just by like the engagement of a lot of other people with them online and in, and in, 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 in like the physical world, uh, insofar as that like, you know, it's still on like some of, some of the survivors have certain specific demands or uh, other survivors are asking for other things. Right. So there are a lot of people whose response to this is like, well, we need more cops in schools. Right. right. That's not just an conservative. And, um, to their credit, a lot of Parkland survivors have said, no, we don't need more cops in schools. They're actually the opposite. We need the exact opposite. We need fewer school resource officers. Like the purpose of, of school resource officers, and I think here, not just what the Parkland kids are saying, but by books, by like a good book by Alex Vitale called The End of Policing that I highly recommend uh, that breaks down this. Like school resource officers basically exist to sho- shovel certain kids into a school to prison pipeline. Right. And to also, you know, deal with kids who are like, there's a non-trivial amount of children who act out in schools. They're disproportionately black and brown, who it's advantageous for school authorities to have put into disciplinary programs or into juvenile hall, both because they're no longer in the classroom, but also because that brings up school test scores. Right. Right. So there's a way in which like the, the issue of asking for gun control narrowly very easily can bleed into feeding all these other mechanisms of social injustice. Um, and What's making this moment so exciting is that even though there are a lot of very traditionalists having assault weapons ban, let's have more cops in schools voices, there are also a lot of voices being like, no, we just need to be the less violent culture as a whole, and we need to undo that structural violence in addition to just the narrow gun violence we see. Like, America's a very violent country. Like, we're super invested in monetizing death, uh, and we're really invested in in having a lot of cognitive distance about this, yeah. right? You hear like even democratic politicians will be like, well, we can't have these weapons of war on our streets. I'm like, well, well, whose streets do they belong on? Right. It, it, it is, like a lot of people want to have their, 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 um, a lot of the gun control stuff that has previously failed. I think been very like immoral. And I, I feel comfortable using this language to you all, um, has been stuff that's been like, they said, well, can we just enforce harder at home 
while still keeping our role as the world's biggest arms manufacturer in a military empire. And, you know, that's... it's morally misbegotten and it's not going to work. I'll yeah. never remember when I when I realized that like when we banned assault weapons that Mexico's murder rate mm-hmm. shot up, right? And it's yeah. like, who who whose lives do we consider <laughs> valuable right, in this right. country? Yeah, I, and I think one of the interesting things about this debate is that from both sides, it always kind of attracts this like very theological reactions. And what do you think about Patrick? Is there sort of this tendency to the- theologize like found bo- on both sides of the argument well so, so i um so this actually this is very this is very important to me it's as a jesuit education this is very important for me like and definitely there's an obvious theology when you hear a lot of people specifically on the right wing talk about you know this is an this is a tragedy we just need to pray mm-hmm. right that, that there was which is a kind of like a non-reaction right it depoliticizes this stuff it um it makes it, it you, at the point at which like you have senators with a truly you know, like an A plus NRA rating who have actively worked to liberalize gun access, being like there's nothing we can do. All we can do is pray. Like this is it's 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 a bad parody of the Book of Job, right? Like it's 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 it, 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 there's some way in which like I'm not knocking prayer as an activity, but prayer from the powerful who have made the situation worth it's terrible. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, I I do have a question about that because I I agree that prayer is clearly not the like only appropriate response um but do you think it's helpful when people like like denounce other people for praying like is that going to help us get anything done because well, this, it, that has become another predictable script where they people give their thoughts and prayers and then people on the other side yell at them for giving their thoughts and prayers yeah this is that, that that gets at one of those like ideas like these pathways or like this ruts in the road right like if, if, if someone's in prayer then there's going to be some i don't want to i can't curse can i there's going to be some, <laughs> some unfortunate person who's like well prayer is bad and you're an idiot like yeah. it, 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 all these we've the sheer repetition with which we've done this has produced this entire ecology of postures and stupid responses and bad positions and it just because you know it's a real petri dish for this so yeah, no, of course, prayer is great. I like I encourage pray if you want. Like, um, but like, has your Jesuit education, uh, you know, shaped at all how how you think about responding to to events like this? Um, I guess it has in some ways. I mean, actually, uh, here I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in one second. Let okay. me just give you yeah. another because 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 it's not the the theological stuff isn't just on the right where it's a lot like essentially um it's essentially bullshit theology, right? Like. Mm-hmm. I think we understand a lot of suffering in this country relative to a template of sacrifice and relative to um, these very uh, sophisticated but rarely articulated logics of moral desert and justified suffering. So, for example, the idea that, you know, the, the kids in Sandy Hook are little angels, uh, but the young black men who were killed on the streets in Ferguson are, you know, they're, they're, yeah, they're thugs, as opposed to simply having a very clear moral standard, which is that no one deserves to get shot ever. Right? So there's a sort of moral filtering that happens where it's like we start choosing these particular people who like, these people don't deserve to suffer, but these people, their suffering is acceptable, right? So that's a theological dimension there, too. But there's also this the way in which sacrifice plays into it, where it's like the logic of sacrifice is very frequently a logic of atonement, right? This is a this is more than just a Christological thing. It's 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 a broader Judeo-Christian thing. But the idea that like somehow sacrifice is purgative, like if there's some, and this is present on the right, 
where people are like, well, the loss of all these kids, it's the price we pay for freedom. This is a former NRA vice president who coined this line. In, in testimony before Congress, someone asked him, well, what do you feel about people like criminals having access to guns who shouldn't or the mentally ill killing people? His response was, well, that's the price we pay for freedom, verbatim. Uh, now, of course, that we is you push and be like, well, no, it's not we. It's some of us who are not necessarily the people who are saying that. Right. Stuff. But also the idea that, like, there's some sort of redemptive principle at play here. And you see that on the left as well? It, it's, I see it sometimes in terms of our, our emotional desires, right? Like our desire to like have some sort of cathartic response, right? Something, this, this massacre has happened. We have to do something. And the idea there is, is we, and it's not, it's not, I'm not judging it per se, right? That impulse is right. But, the, but, the, but there's a hope that somehow we could take some action that could make us feel as morally vindicated as the tragedy that we just witnessed makes us feel implicated and terrible. Hmm. I, I, I'll leave it to the theologians to talk about the metaphysical logic of like uh, of sacrifice in, in, in a theological sense. But like, I have a very hard time imagining any political action that could redeem the mass murder of 20 children. Yeah. Right. And I have a hard idea also of like, I, I question any, I, I have my own moral qualms with, thinking that there's anything that making it about my feelings in the first place, about our feelings in the first place, right? The idea that some of these, these kids who were murdered are going to, we're going to make good their sacrifice by, by what? Right. It, by yelling very, at our family members <laughs> or owning, owning the conservatives or owning the libs or doing all these things that like, you just want to jump into a cesspool because like, that's what you're faced with, right? Like with all this suffering. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's a super relatable. <laughs> yeah. What, what is a, what, I, I assume you don't think there should be no response. So what is what what yeah. what do you want to see going forward when we have these debates and when we try to implement some sort of response? I'm getting this I'm getting this question a lot more now and I like I, I like getting it. It's a good thing people are thinking about this, right? Like but for the first thing I'd say is just is just really I want us to to have a it's not a non-response, but I want us to have a reflective response. Well, when we see one specimen act of violence that's like headline grabbing, to stop and be like, how is this how does this example of violence reflect broader systems of violence? That sounds a lot like a genuine thought and prayer. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so so there's that. Like just being like, how do we like like maybe maybe America maybe when we talk about school shooting, we should be talking about making like if we're worried about school shootings, maybe we should be a little more worried about you know about making America less violent overall. Like being not maybe we should question you know I'm not using the we as Catholics because I'm not one, but like maybe folks of, of good of goodwill and good intention might want to might want to question their their desire to, to to exist in a military superpower. Or maybe it's funny how the country that also has the most guns in private hands also has the most both per capita and in total also has per capita and in total the most people in prison. Right? Maybe these are related problems. Right? So that's something. So, so something that's other than a purely knee jerk. Let's make ourselves feel better by pissing off the NRA or pissing off our red state uncle. But saying like, what's what's a, what's the thing that we? How can we deal with? Um, how can we have a holistic? I hate to use the phrase seamless garment, but a more sort of like cohesive vision of of human life and its dignity that we can protect. In terms of other stuff, like in terms of concrete policy stuff, like yeah, like we need to. I, I, my friend Jennifer Carlson, whose work is brilliant, she's a sociologist at Toronto and now in Arizona, uh, has a book called Citizen Protectors that I strongly recommend. Um, but her, her her conclusion in that book is that we need to make guns less socially relevant. 
gun gun violence is the tip of the iceberg of broader systems of violence and oppression and people feeling, you know, much in the same way as like suicide. Two thirds of our gun deaths are going to be suicides in any given year, right? It's 20,000 people. Um, like that's an act of, I think in most cases of despair and should be preventable and people should not, people should not feel the need to do this. Right. And so maybe we should intervene rather than you know, let's just take away the guns. Of course we should, we, we, we should have those conversations, but to also intervene on the systems of suffering and misery that make this type of outcomes practicable. Real quick, if you could give like, if you see the, the good, bad, and like worse, <laughs> what's going to happen? A couple of years ago, I wrote a piece about going to a gun show in Georgia and I got a, and I was like, what are people so, yeah, I got, the affect I felt there most was fear, right? Mm-hmm. And I ended this piece being like, what are people most afraid of? And a couple weeks later, a couple months later, I got a letter sent to me by a, um, a Catholic worker affiliated association called the Open Door Community that had been working with death row inmates and people who were working lifers. And they, uh, they had printed out a copy of the article and distributed it to some of their, some people that they work with inside. Uh, and a man who was serving um, life for a uh, a really horrific home invasion and double murder, uh, and who had since rediscovered his Catholicism in prison, read it and wrote back to me. And the line, like, is is he quoted Augustine to me? Actually, he was sort of the amazing thing, uh, and it was just like, well, you know, I did what I did. I'm not asking for excuses, but um, I everything I did was done out of a sense of impotence and fear. Uh, and the line specifically that he quoted to me was that you cannot you, you, you cannot love with fear in your heart. Um, and I still think about I had this letter again written by he killed a, a toddler. Uh, but, but getting this but, but having his own story of like abuse and, and vulnerability and then going on to kill other people and being like the, the root of all this was fear. Right. So if you want like a, like a philosophical, theological thing, we need to think about fear. Right. And what we're afraid of in terms of good, bad, worse. Good is we get. We get serious about not just asking for gun control, but just about building down how violent we are as a society. We disarm our police, we disarm ourselves, and we eliminate the structural conditions that make people want to hurt each other and themselves. Yeah. Um, bad is we maintain what we're doing consistently, right? Just a basic status quo. We continue to, to, to we continue to enrich arms companies. We continue to grow the police, uh, and we continue to basically accept the fact that the same amount of people that die of Car accidents and drug overdoses are about the same that we lose to guns in every given year. That's bad. Worse is um, we go full on, we go even more into the security state policing. We put police everywhere. Our understanding of gun control is just putting people in prison uh, and we just militarize further. And I think we actually are at a point where all three of those scenarios are equally possible. And I really hope we go for the first. So if, if, I, if, I, if I were a praying man, I'd pray that that, that, that gets it. <laughs> well, Thank you so much, Patrick. Uh, We've got one more question for you. If you could canonize anyone living or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, who would it be and why? As a non-praying man. As a (laughs) non-praying man. Who would you make a saint? For others to pray to. Jesus. Uh, (laughs) Do you you say Jesus? (laughs) I don't think he needs your help. I can think of clerics I know who've done a lot of work on gun violence and who I would, they're still living, so I wouldn't want to canonize them out of time. I think more about the martyrs and we have a lot of them. Uh, Trayvon Martin. I, I, I can't stop thinking about Trayvon Martin. It's been years. I can't. Um, I think that's, I think that there's a, there's a whole roster of, of, of names that we've, we've known for, for headlines are just people who have been forgotten and this daily churn. And I, I don't, I don't know who to elevate as a, a specimen example of a person who I would, 
write a hagiography about or look to for divine intercession. But I, I think that thinking about this constant toll that's yeah. not reducible to any logic of, of, um, of, of, of redemption, but is really about witnessing and about a call to action. I would think about that. Hey Amen. I mean, yeah. m- martyrs and companions. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of instances in the church where like mm-hmm. y- y- names just get lost, but mm-hmm. you still want to elevate their examples. So, Amen. Yeah. So let's canonize martyrs of gun violence. Well, yeah. Well, this has been really great. So, yeah, and, thank and you so much. Thank you so much. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep writing. Thanks, Patrick. Happy to meet you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another. And this week, as we said, we're going to do something a little different. This is a prayer that our colleague, Father James Martin, wrote back in 2017 called Sad, Tired, and Angry, A Prayer in the Face of Gun Violence. Almighty God, I come before you once again after another shooting. I'm sad, God. So I ask you to receive into your loving care the souls of those who were killed to care for those who were wounded or hurt in any way, to console the family members and friends of those who died or were wounded, to strengthen the hands of rescue workers, medical professionals, and caregivers. I pray, too, for the shooter, as I must as a Christian. All this makes me inexpressibly sad, God. But I know that the sadness I feel is your sadness. It is the same sadness your son expressed when he wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. I'm tired, God. I'm tired of the unwillingness to see this as an important issue. I'm tired of those in power who work to prevent any real change. I'm tired of those who say that gun violence can't be reduced. All this makes me tired, but I know that the tiredness I feel is your tiredness. It's the same tiredness that Jesus felt after his own struggles against injustice that led him to fall asleep on the boat with his disciples. I am angry, God. I'm angry at the seeming powerlessness of our community to prevent this. I'm angry at the selfish financial interest to block change. I'm angry that these shootings happen at all. But I know that this anger is your anger. It's the same anger Jesus felt when he overturned the tables in the temple. Angry that anyone would be taken advantage of in any way. Help me see in these emotions your own desire for change. Help me see in these feelings you're moving me to act. Help me see in these reactions, you are pushing me to do something. Because I know this is the way you move people to action. And I know that you desire action. For Jesus did not stand by while people were being hurt. He plunged into their lives. So help me answer these questions. How can I help? How can I fight against gun violence? How can I urge my political leaders to enact change? How can I help people understand that this is an issue about life? I am sad over the loss of life, 
tired of excuses for the loss of life, and angry that we are paralyzed by the loss of life. So, turn my sadness into compassion. Turn my tiredness into advocacy. Turn my paralysis into the freedom to act. Help me to be compassionate, to advocate, and to act, as your son did, almighty God. Amen. Amen. All right, I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at American Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, What do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.